we're uh, picking up our teachings in Nehemiah here, and I want to open today by uh, sharing a story with you. And this is a story that revolves around this idea of prayer and action. This teaching is sort of split into two sections. What happens in the text we've read today is prayer and action, but I don't have time to address both uh, fully, so we're going to look at these things individually, how prayer and action are literally inseparable when it comes to our pursuit of Jesus. And so when I first became a Christian, I uh, was very hungry to grow in my faith. I I read a lot of stuff. I asked a lot of questions. I actually had a ton of objections to faith. I I would never say that I was like anti-God, but I always enjoyed critical thinking and sort of highlighting flaws in people's logic. And, and I was a, 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 a tough sell, if you will, on you know, devoting your life to somebody named Jesus. And so I, when I became a Christian, it was after a lot of thought, and I really just wanted to know what I was, what I was, what I was believing in. I, I believed that I understood in like an embryonic way what it meant to love Jesus. But I recognized like there's this big book called the Bible and following him. And so I started listening to stuff. I got connected with some guys that helped sort of disciple me. All that, all that sort of investment really mattered. And I listened to a ton of sermons. And I re- remember one illustration that really stood with me. It's actually stood the time with me, uh, the test of time with me. And it was a sermon that addressed sort of how we understand our future in God's kingdom and our responsibility in it. And sort of like how God works when we're praying for things to happen. And in the sermon, this pastor told a pretty pointed analogous story. You may, maybe you've even heard it before. And I want to share it with you today. It's a story about a guy that he, he lives in this house in a city. And due to lots of heavy rain, the city begins to flood. And so rather naturally, the residents are forced to higher ground. And some folks, uh, they have to get on the roof of their homes because the water is so high. And this is probably not an uncommon sight. Some of us have seen this here in Florida when we've had hurricanes. Certainly my time in New Orleans, this is a, a common thing to be up above the water so you can stay alive. And so this guy is up here on this roof and he's panicking naturally and he doesn't know what to do. And so he does what most people do when you are dealing with a situation that is beyond your capacity or strength. He starts to pray. This is a common thread that often compels us to pray. And so he says, God, I've been on this roof for a day now and no one has come. Please, please rescue me. And so he sits up there and he waits. And a couple of hours later, he hears a noise, a faint hum that turns out to be a boat motor. And it turns out that there's a guy just sort of uh, boating down the streets of this city, trying to help people that need help. And so he pulls up on the side of the house and he asks the guy if he's okay. And the guy replies, hey, I'm fine. I'm just waiting for somebody to come rescue me off of this roof. And the man driving the boat is a little confused because he stayed on the roof. And after realizing the guy wasn't going to get in the boat, he just pulled away. On the second day, 24 hours later, in a much more frustrated way, the man on the roof is doing the same thing. He's praying again with more urgency. He says, God, now I'm praying two full days. I'm stuck on this roof, and I need to get off it. Can, you got to rescue me. Do something here. And just like the day before, a few hours later, sort of a faint hum in the distance, and the boat comes by and pulls up on the side of the house, and the same man yells to the same guy and repeats the episode that happened the day prior. He asks the guy if he's okay and what he's still doing on the roof. And the guy said on the roof, well, I'm, I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And even more confused because the guy didn't get off the roof, the guy in the boat pulled away. On the third day, the guy prayed again, and the scenario repeated itself. The guy's angry now, like shaking his fist at God. God, when are you going to do something? Why are you not answering my prayers to get me off of this roof? And then it happened. The boat pulled up again. 
right? Pulls up in the side of the house, and this time the guy in the boat was a little more forceful. Angrily, the guy says to the, uh, angrily, this guy says to God, I'm praying and I'm waiting for you to rescue me, to do something here. And the man on the, on the boat yelled up to him and said, listen, I haven't said this in the past two days, but I'm going to say it now. I need your full attention, he says. He says, have you ever made the connection that you keep praying for God to do something in your life, to rescue you off of this roof, and, and maybe he's actually doing that by sending somebody by every day to help you off of it? And he says, maybe it's time for you to stop praying about this and actually do something about this situation. Like, don't pray about the roof anymore. Get off of it and get into my boat. And the point of the story, like maybe in, in our lives, like the idea of being stuck on a roof is a little far-fetched, but the root of what this story communicates is very true. And it will be the subject of what we're going to talk about in great detail next week. Oftentimes when we pray, we are asking God to do things uh, around us, right, that he often wants to do through us. In other words, we see a need or we know something's going on and we're praying for God to do something in that situation. And we should pray for God to do something in that situation. But the argument I want to make today and sort of build on next week is that sometimes, and I would argue most times, when you begin to be burdened in an area of your life about something and you begin to pray for change or action in that something, we should be heavily predisposed to the truth that God can and will do something in that situation. And it very likely will include us. It doesn't, it's not like sort of we're, we're a conduit for God to do his work without us. The scripture teaches us that God does his work through us. And so this story expresses like a guy waiting for some, I don't know what his expectation was, but God was clearly answering his prayer and it required something of him. It expresses the heart of what we're going to talk about today and next week. When it comes to godly vision, which we've spent a month defining, a burden to be something that you are not yet in God, a desire for us as a church to be someplace where we are not yet as we talk about space and uh, ever-increasing influence in our disciple-making capacity. These are all things that in many ways are happening at our church, but we, we want God to work in more profound ways. When it comes to these things I'm asking you uh, to pray for alongside me, there is very likely going to be a step of action. I'll give you a very logical one here. So I've told you now, unofficially, we've had people searching for space uh, for our church for years. It isn't like this just came up. We just decided at the end of last year to formalize a team of people whom in due time we'll bring down here and pray over so you can see them. But the point is that we are praying for God to find us something that we can, that we can call home, right? But we also recognize, like the guy in the boat, we are out looking, we are out praying, we are out talking to people about what is out there. And that's simply what I mean by prayer and action. I'm not saying, you know, action without prayer is a problem because you become the God of the situation. I can't fabricate a building. I, I wish I could, but it's not within my strength. And believe me, I've tried to do that for the past several years. Um, nor can we just pray and hope God does everything without us. I think there's a balance in the scripture about what we bring before God and then what God actually asks of us as we, as we bring about his kingdom in this, in this way. And so last week, we talked about how all godly vision, whether in your life or a church family, is rooted in scripture. It has to be. We had to have some prerequisites for understanding when vision is healthy, when it is unhealthy, and when it might even be abusive. And so I just, I have to say this, and I'll probably say it every week from here on out, any vision we talk about for our lives or the future has to be objectively affirmed by the scripture. It cannot violate the teachings of the Bible. And so that's why it's important that we know the word. Like we said last week, Nehemiah was a man who understood the laws of God. 
And he realized that one of the problems Israel had was that they had disobeyed them all. And so he repents, something we'll talk about here in a few moments. But we have to have some metric of discernment to be able to know when God is speaking and when he isn't speaking. And that's really what we spent the last month talking about. Because knowing God through prayer, knowing God through scriptural study and communal accountability, it actually allows us to more clearly identify what our mission and ministry opportunities, what those things are in life, and when we should pursue them or, or walk away from them. It gives us a platform to figure out the things we should or should not be doing when it comes to the way God leads our lives. Some of those things are very clear. Some are not. And sometimes in life, we can sort of persuade ourselves into doing things that we think might actually please God, uh, but don't, they just don't. That's sort of the natural progression of any, of any sin in life. I've told you multiple times that the enemy is not a, he's not a flat-out liar. He's a distorter of truth. He's sophisticated in the way that he lies. And so lying is just a subtle manipulation of a truth. And I always reference that story in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Uh, you know, the, the enemy and his schemes, he, doesn't, he does not sort of resolutely tell Adam and Eve that, that God is lying to you. Like, you know, he doesn't say that. What he says is, surely God wouldn't mind if you do this. He just twists the truth slightly enough to where it seems slightly believable. And then the next thing you know, you wind up being in a situation that might be very far from God. And so our ability to know truth, apply truth, and discern when things are being presented to us as truth that are not truth is very important, especially when you deal with an ambiguous word like vision. Search vision on Google today, and you, your computer will blow up with all of the references you have uh, for books and resources and, and periodicals and people that want to tell you what to do with your life. And so I encourage you again to discern what Jesus has said and to discern certainly what we're learning about God's movement in the Old Testament. And so what happens here is today we begin studying the actions that took place after Nehemiah prays. He's, he's sort of moving past prayer now and into the fact that there's something he has to do. And his actions highlight a biblical truth about how God uses people to bring about his kingdom on earth. Remember, God uses us to bring about his kingdom on earth. That's his plan, not mine. So when we pray, we should expect to be a part of that. In fact, it would be our desire, hopefully anyways, that we would be a bit excited about the fact that we get to participate in that mission and whatever God does. So after receiving incredibly discouraging news about the walls in Jerusalem, Nehemiah's next steps prove that nothing in God's kingdom happens without praying about it first. That is such a foundational truth in both Testaments, yet it is a truth that is so difficult to apply in life. And believe me, I'm not talking at you here. I'm, I'm just, I'm talking with you. It is very easy to immediately want to start doing things without actually consulting God, without being still and patient, without waiting sometimes for God to speak clearly, whether that's through his word or, or through other people. We do live in a very impulsive society. I've, I've told you that speed is the enemy of faith. And oftentimes that's what we want. We want the end caps. That's what I said a month ago. We want to know where we are and what the goal is, and we just want to get to the goal. And I'm for goals, but remember the process in between those two things, that's truly how God works in our lives. We are who we are today, not because of end caps, uh, uh, not goals. We are who we are because of what it took to get to those goals. And that's the same truth that happens here. There's this particular burden that we see Nehemiah has, and it leads him not just to ask God to do something in this situation to help restore the spirit uh, and the ethos of Israel. At some point, what happens is he actually believes he is being led by God to do something about it. And this leads me to the only truth that I want to share with you this morning. The first thing Nehemiah did when confronted with a situation much greater than himself 
was to pray to his God who was much greater than his situation. And I want to say that one more time. The first thing Nehemiah did after he laments, right? The first thing he does when confronted with a situation much greater than himself, he knows what is in front of him. He does not have the strength to do this on his own. He begins to pray to his God who he fully recognizes is much greater than the situation in front of him. And I've said this when speaking of Jesus, because remember, everything in the Old Testament is it's an arrow pointing to the way Jesus works, is that in, in modern New Testament language, what we would say is that we don't want to bow to our circumstances. We want to bow to the God of our circumstances because he is much more benevolent than our circumstances often are in life. What he's handed here is a mess. And rather than falling apart, after he laments and properly aligns himself with God, he is given this infusion of strength of power and of authority. In other words, he hears from God and he sees hope in a situation that is completely desolate. And so if you want to become someone or do something great for God in your life, it must be built on the foundation of prayer. We have to be a people that recognize the king of our faith, of our life, wants us to communicate to him. It's one of the greatest things God has provided us, this open opportunity to speak to him. And one of the great emphasis, emphasis points in the book of Nehemiah is this importance of God's people being unified in their prayers. That is why I am asking you week after week to consider, you know, we're not going to meet in a room together outside of this room, but what it would be like for our body in different places and spaces throughout the week to be praying for very particular things about God's work on earth in our own lives and in our church. If you read the Bible, you will see prayer is emphatically discussed in a myriad of places. It is undoubtedly an integral part of the Christian life. And a few weeks ago, I mentioned the New Testament equivalent to what we're talking about here today in John chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, where Jesus says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. That's an incredibly powerful and an utterly confusing verse in the same sense. Because this is why I was saying earlier we need to be able to, to discern godly vision. I've heard a lot of people pray for things in the name of Jesus that are absolutely not of Jesus. And so Jesus' words in John, here's the backdrop to this. They come just after he tells his disciples that God is going to continue the amazing work he began in Christ on earth to advance his kingdom through them. In other words, he's saying, you're going to do greater things than I did on earth when I was here. And that is in large part because of the fact that the Holy Spirit's going to be released in the earth. And so we should briefly note that we are told to unashamedly ask God for things, to pray, uh, to, pray to God for things. Um, Abe and I, our worship leader, we have this sort of inside joke that's no longer inside. But when we talk about praying, we talk about beating on the door unashamedly. There's a, like a New Testament proverb that says we should relentlessly be going to God with the things that are going on in, in our lives. We just need to make sure that when we're bringing these things to God, that the things we're doing are actually in the name of Jesus. In other words, they honor God, they benefit the, the kingdom of God and, and the people around us. This is one of the ways we can discern good and bad vision. Like God's vision for the world was to put Jesus on the cross to redeem us of our sins. That is something that is, it's actually detrimental to him. There's no benefit for this in his life, but it's an extreme advantage for us. This is the root of almost all vision is where there's some self-sacrifice that creates an amazing channel for God to do something beautiful. And the reason Jesus tells us to pray boldly like this is because Christianity is more than a philosophy. 
It's more than a religion. It's more than, than just a faith. It can be all of these things, but it is something much more than just those things. I mean, it can be an academic exercise. Christianity is a spiritual faith, and I want to tell you what I mean by that. What that means is it's, it's rooted in relationships, the one we have with our Father in heaven and the relationships we have with each other. And so it makes perfect sense that, that anything we're attempting to do in the name of Jesus, we, we actually have to have Jesus involved in that. We don't have Jesus, at least the way we understand him in the Old Testament here in Nehemiah. That's why God is, uh, Nehemiah is not praying in the name of Jesus. But he is praying to God with the same sort of fervent attitude that you and I would pray for something today in the name of Jesus. It's the same exact hard attitude. It's just that Jesus is not on the earth yet in a way where Nehemiah fully understands the culmination of these, these covenants that God has laid out with his people. But the root of what he's doing is identical. And in the modern church, this sort of sense of urgency that we see Nehemiah have, there's a burden that compels him to bring something to God. We really need to have more of that in our own lives. And I'll be the first person to say that begins with me. If we want to be people who reveal the goodness and the grace of God to Jesus, if we want to correct the wrongs of the world, if we want to make a change in our areas of influence, then what we have to do is make sure no matter, no matter what we're trying to accomplish for, for God. In our case, I've always said we want to make disciples. It's the metric we hold the highest here. It's, it's people who are, who are coming to Jesus and growing in Jesus and have a desire to help other people come and grow in Jesus. That's the greatest goal we have as a church. And we cannot accomplish that goal without bringing these things to Jesus because we're not making disciples of me. We're not making disciples of you. We're making disciples of Jesus. And we want him to be a part of this process. You know, I have said over the years many times that you, you cannot build the kingdom of God without the king. And so what we do when, when we say we want to have faith or see others grow in faith, what we are doing is literally importing glimpses of heaven into earthly realities. This dialogue we're having here, this hour and 10 minutes that we meet here every Sunday, this is sort of like a microcosm of the reality of what heaven is going to look like. When we are together with each other permanently, inseparable, with nothing but God's truth and goodness around us. Everything we do in the Christian faith is designed to reveal something about our Father in heaven. Nothing is random. And so that is why it is so important that we go to our Father in heaven with anything that is on our minds at all times. That is particular when we talk about wanting to help people uh, find and grow in Jesus. And I'll tell you absolutely, concretely, when it comes to something more permanent, we have to ask God. We do, because I believe that a space for us is going to be one of those like Yahweh moments where we're going to be able to say, I cannot believe it happened this way, but it did because we trusted in God. We're going to labor well, don't get me wrong, but I believe with all my heart that we're going to be able to, like the Exodus event, give nothing but glory to God for that next stage in our life. And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time this morning is give you Two, two sort of ideas. One is a practical analogy of how prayer works. And then I want to show you how Nehemiah actually prays in this text. Because we get sort of a, a, a background, an understanding of prayer. And then we get the literal metrics, the literal way that he prays. Okay, So uh, about five years ago, I shared this illustration with you. So I'm sure you all remember it. I like to talk about the law when it comes to how we understand uh, prayer and authority. I think it's probably the, the clearest and, and most uh, robust example we have in the modern world. And I'll just use the example of, of a police officer, okay, to, to sort of create the subtext here. A, a, sort of like how a police officer functions is the way that we are being commanded to function in John and the way Nehemiah is functioning in Nehemiah. So 
a law enforcement officer is able to do his or her job because they do it in the name of the law. It's illegal to impersonate a law enforcement officer. So we already have some, some things here that show us there's, there's something just beyond the person, vested in the person, that gives them the authority to, to back the law, to enforce the law. And that's what a badge typically represents. It comes with some vested authority, some credentialing that says, I have been deemed by society as a person who can enforce the law. And so I've joked a lot. Uh, I live on a very busy street in our neighborhood, and people drive really fast down the street. And there are a lot of times where I wish I had the capacity to, like, throw, like, one of those spike chains out in my, the front of my house and watch the wheels blow up because they're doing, like, 60 miles an hour, looking at their phone texting while, like, my kids are kicking soccer balls in the front of the house. I mean, if I were to do that, I think my neighbors would be happy, but I'd be in prison, like, 10, 10 minutes later, right? There's, there's something about the fact that uh, enforcing that, I, I have a very limited ability to do so. So it's truly like when we talk about the vested authority in a badge, the backing and credentials of, of the law are behind the people who wear those, those badges. They have an objective authority that gives them the capacity and the capability to do what they do with authenticity and honesty. This is something Nehemiah clearly understands. And I want to parallel this idea with, with prayer. Look at these two parallels we have. Okay, Nehemiah and how we pray to Jesus today. We know that Nehemiah knows God very well. He speaks to him as if he's a best friend. The way that he prays in the first chapter shows us this is a person who has, who has a deep relationship, not just with God, but with an absolute authority, a, a person who uses his authority for the good of the world. And he is wise enough to know immediately that he cannot enforce anything he wants to do without having the authority of God behind him. In other words, the power and the purpose of God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus promises us that we will do great things for his kingdom. I said earlier, he actually tells us in other places, we're going to do greater things. Think about this. Jesus says, you and I will do greater things than what he did on earth in his absence. Because his spirit works in all of us at all times around the world. That's a fascinating statement when you think about it. Because most of us would say, man, it would be awesome if I could have Jesus right in front of me. But what Je- and that day will come. But what Jesus says is, it's actually more awesome that I'm not right in front of you. Because my spirit now works in the whole world. There is some objective authority right behind us that allows us to, to pray for and ask for things in the name of God. In the same way a law enforcement officer with the authority of the law can arrest somebody when they violate a statute or some legality, this is the idea behind how we pray. We don't just pray rattling off expectations in our heart. When we pray for the things that are in line with the kingdom of God, the whole host of God's heavens are behind us. The, the, the backing behind what we might think are feeble prayers, are, that they're not feeble at all. The host of God's power and authority is behind these things. And that is pretty amazing when you think about it. And so both teachings in Nehemiah and certainly in John, they they teach us sort of a promise and a warning about the significance of prayer in our life, that we have been tasked. There's there's no questioning this. We have been tasked to do great things for God. There there is no praying about, like, God, do you want to use me? That is, is, you may pray that, but the answer has already been given in the Bible. The answer is yes, God does desire to use you. How he uses you is a different story. But there is no person on earth that God does not want fellowship with and does not want laboring on behalf of his kingdom in his name. And so when we go to God, we go with this unique purpose of, of attempting to do great things for God. We just have to remember that we shouldn't attempt them without God. And the way we attempt them without God is one by 
you know, sort of getting on an endeavor that maybe we don't consult God about or his truth, or uh, in, in a noble way, we just want to fix issues or change issues. We know something's wrong, and we think, hey, I'm just going to jump in and, and start working. There is a time for action. I'll talk about this next week, but I want to say that stillness usually precedes action. And so one of the things I felt like God has most clearly said to me, it's one of the hardest things I've heard in a very long time. Uh, I actually wrote it down on my desk this week, is that this season in front of us, as we're praying about where to go and what to do, this is a a season of stillness for us. And what I simply mean is, is we have run ragged looking for someplace. It has not been for lack of effort, okay? But it just hasn't happened. And so what I believe God is asking us to do is to be still right now and to begin praying. It's to sort of, the, the burdens in our heart uh, to, be, to, be in a, uh, to be a church that can advance God's causes. We do think it's going to be critical that we can spend less than six hours setting up and breaking stuff down and that we have rooms we can meet in permanently and offer to our community. We believe that deeply. But the truth is that we have to believe that God believes that too. We have to pray to him because we cannot fabricate this solution on our own. We've been here 10 years. If we could have fabricated this, it would have been done. And this is true in any area of our lives. We should not attempt to do anything for God's kingdom without the king. And in Nehemiah, verses 4 through 11, what we see is the way Nehemiah prays. He prays knowing he has the full authority of God behind him. In confidence, because he knows what he's asking for is in alignment with God. He wants to restore people to God. That's his purpose. But we also see some boldness in what he does. And This prayer structure should be pretty familiar to us because you all know that we do this thing every new year called the ACTS prayer model. And it's actually what he uses here. He's not using this paradigm like this wasn't floating around in literature around his day, but it proves the point that this way of praying is actually pretty concrete in the Bible. You can look at almost any prayer and find this structure. This ACTS model, which we'll talk about in detail here in a second, gives us a a construct for how we pray healthily. You begin by adoring God because we know who God is and we believe firmly in in what he has done for us. We want to keep in step with that. After sort of recognizing the God we speak to, we should be a people who confess our sin because whenever we adore God, it should remind us in a very humble and holy way of who God is and who we are not in God. In other words, part of knowing God is to have a reflection of where our failure points are. But part of knowing God is also that we can be thankful that God doesn't hold us to our failure points. He shows us grace and wants us to grow in his grace. And so there is always something to be thankful about because of Jesus. And finally, when I teach this and we pray through it every uh, new year, we pray for supplication. We pray for God to supply something. And I always recommend that we ask for what God supplies at the end of these first three models because it clarifies a bit of, of what we're asking for. If you want to know how to discern godly vision, requests adoring God and confessing sin and being thankful, your whole worldview can change in about five minutes when you start doing that. And so this prayer model is, is deeply biblical. We're going to see it here in Nehemiah. And you also see it in the, in the Psalms a lot, the, this idea of, of a recognition of a problem and this adoration of God, a confession of where somebody has failed God, thankfulness for forgiveness, and then the ability to get up and ask God to make change and to pursue it. Because our needs and our desires, I mean this with all my heart, they have to be They have to be the last thing we bring to God because they are the most subjective things in our lives. I'm not even saying they're wrong, but I am saying needs and desires. Humans have a a longstanding history of conflating these two ideas and getting them wrong. And so we want to make sure when we 
begin evoking the authority of the heavens behind the things we ask God for, that we are actually asking for things that are in line with God's will. Just like the badge, you don't want to, you don't want to be impersonating a law enforcement officer. You want to be a person who has got vested credentials because what you want to see happen on earth is what God wants to happen on earth through us. And that it always revolves around restoring people to, to his goodness. That's how God gets glorified. When men and women find that grace we speak about each week, it makes God deeply happy. And we want to be committed to that work. And so briefly, I'll run you through what Nehemiah does. In verse 4, the foundation of this whole teaching is that he is broken for the people of Israel. And I said a couple of weeks ago that vision is always preceded by some godly concern. He is, he is devastated about the news he receives about his countrymen that they are in shambles and in shame. And in verse 5, the very next verse, Nehemiah does not get on a horse and ride to Jerusalem. What he does after lamenting is he begins this adoration statement of God. And I'll paraphrase here. He realizes that this is a task that exceeds his ability. And so he goes to the God of of the kingdom who rightly identifies him as, as great and awesome. In other words, he immediately knows this God is greater than this circumstance. It's the first thing he tells himself is, this is bad, but you are greater than this. And verses 6 through 7, immediate confession of sin. Because as he's beginning to recognize where God is and where his people are not, I mean, it's a pretty thorough statement. He confesses his own sin, the sin of Israel at large. He admits that our forefathers have acted wickedly against you. He basically stops and says, I'm sorry, this was, this was a mistake. And the beautiful thing about this is, like, this is so important to hear about our faith, is the story does not end there. We have this this thanksgiving that he gives that comes right after this. After he confesses this to God, that Israel has literally been destroyed because of their unfaithfulness to God, he refers to the law and the scriptures, and he asks God, think about this. As soon as he apologizes, he then asks God to make good on his promise that if they return to him, he would return them to their glory. In other words, he would return them to fully adopted sons and daughters of the king of heaven. He doesn't say, God, forgive me and don't smote me. The first thing he says is, now God, please bring us back to that place you brought us to once before. There is so much grace in what is going on here that it's tremendous. And the rest of this book, the supplication is about how God executes this grace. Because after Nehemiah recognizes that God is going to do this. After he recognizes that God is a God who keeps his covenants. In other words, he's going to keep this promise, even when his people would not. He then asks God to do something. In verse 11, he says, supply our need. Give me favor, he says, with the Persian king. And then the last thing we read in this chapter is, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, I've mentioned multiple times that he had a, an esteemed position with the king. Cupbearer is interesting. You bring, you bring you know, drinks to the king and also taste them to make sure it's not poison. So it's a very high and dangerous job in any type of kingdom. But what this means is, is he has direct access to the king at all times. And his first prayer has nothing to do with the wall. His first prayer, because he's now beginning to discern vision, is that I am owned right now by this Persian king. And God, unless you do something in this situation, unless you grant me favor with this king, I'm not going to be able to do what you want. He is slowing down to speed up. There's a season of stillness in front of him right now. And so to date, we've seen Nehemiah is a humble man. We've seen that Nehemiah is a teachable man. We've seen that Nehemiah is a repentant man. He is a man who knows and loves God. He is a man who knows the law of God, the word of God. Because he knows these things, he is beginning to take steps. 
he is beginning to move in a direction that is honoring God, bringing glory to God, and in a very short amount of time will begin to get benefiting the world that he lives in. And we see Nehemiah is not a perfect man. One of, the, one of the challenges with books like this is that they can often take on hero complexes, sort of like the Apostle Paul when we reference him. He's sort of like an all-star in the New Testament, but he was a deeply flawed human being. And so what you've got is you've got a great story of redemption here, but it begins with a, a man actually getting before God and saying, here's some background music for my invitation. Come you now who are ready, All right? Sorry about this. We'll just roll with it. Uh, <clears throat> can't make this stuff up, right? <laughs> he is actually an incredibly sinful person at the moment he goes to God. And because of God's goodness and grace, he does something powerful here. And so here's how I want to end today. Here's what I'd like us to think about. Um, praying and acting are connected together. With prayer without action is incomplete. Action without prayer is incomplete. Because it's just about guarantee that your vision, your burden, whatever God puts on your heart, is you're going to be a part of that. If, if you have a burden for the oppressed or for the homeless or for the suffering or for the sick, it, God isn't going to just do a bunch of stuff around you. It is very likely you will be a key part of, of how that resolution, of how that, that critical issue is brought to, to correction. And so as we move on to what we're going to talk about next week, we're, we're going to get into action. Nehemiah's prayer ends with action. He asks for God to give him favor with this king so he can accomplish something pretty profound. He's got a clear understanding of the what is and the what could be. And if you took me seriously last week when I asked you to join me in prayer for God to bring about a, not just a renewed season of passion passion for disciple making here, but increasing influence to spread the goodness of Jesus in our world, increasing influence to have something that's permanent that we can meet in. All I want to leave you with is this, is ask yourself as we wrap up, are you praying on the roof? Or are you the person that actually gets off the roof when you see God moving? It's a pretty clear analogy. We can ask God all day long to do things, but it is very likely at some point God will send a metaphorical boat our way to get into to bring about some form of change. Because we don't have all of Nehemiah's recorded prayer. I'm confident he didn't write down word for word what he said. But I'm pretty sure at some point he was, he was asking God to do something about that wall. What we know, though, is that that's not the first thing he wants us to know. What he wants us to know is that the God of, of all circumstances is the God that can fix this. And it doesn't take him long to see that God, that God is going to use him to do it. And so as we close this morning, really think about your prayer life, first and foremost. How you pray, if you pray, when you pray. If you have questions about what it means to pray, let us know that. If you don't understand anything about prayer, let us know that. We can help you figure that out. If you do pray, please Take seriously the request I'm going to bring to you week after week to be involved in our corporate prayer chain in a unified, concerted effort of our people to be praying at all times and in all places. I will spare you the details of how that works now. But all I can say is if, if you can spare five minutes a day to pray, then you are qualified for this. So let us know in that connection card or find somebody after worship or get in touch with us during this week so we can get you into that loop. We're going to spend the next month building that. As we close, consider what it means to pray and to act. Ask yourself, when it comes to your prayer life, what is Jesus saying to you and what will you do about it?